Hi, it's Alex. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Life Pedagogic from CFEY's Youth and Education podcast. In this series of podcast episodes, we're interviewing high-profile guests about their life and work within the youth and education sectors. These exploratory, open discussions will invite you into the speaker's worlds and encourage challenging thinking. We hope you enjoy listening. Two-fifths of the English public believe they would make a good teacher. But how much do the public know about what teaching is really like and what goes on in schools every day? I suspect not very much. And in some ways, many of the challenges that currently face the educational sector, from underfunding to poor working conditions, arise because the public don't really understand the reality of what goes on in our schools. Vic Goddard is an inspirational head teacher who set out to change that. In 2011, his school, Passmore Academy, was the setting for the seminal reality TV show, Educating Essex. Enormously popular with the public, the show used dozens of candid cameras to capture the reality of life in an English school in the 21st century, in all of its messy and emotional glory. Full of humour and the pathos of growing up, the show also captured the real challenges teachers face working in left-behind communities and how majestically they rise to meet this challenge. Since the show, Vic has continued to be one of the country's most prominent spokespeople for schools and public life. Still heading up Passmore Academy, he holds honorary doctorates in education from the University of Chichester and Anglia Ruskin University, and has somehow managed to find time in his busy headship to write a book on his job titled The Best Job in the World. When we speak to someone like Vic about their work, it's difficult to doubt the truth of that book's title. Vic Goddard, welcome to your Life Pedagogic. Hi, thank you. What, what an honour to be invited. Vic, at the time of recording this podcast, we're in the midst of ongoing teacher strikes in England, and I've noticed that you've been especially outspoken in support of industrial action, particularly compared to many other head teachers. Could you tell us more about why you think these strikes are important and why you think other heads might be quieter on the subject? Um, I think, firstly, about why other head teachers would be quieter about it. You know, I'm in a position in my career where um, I'm much nearer the end than the beginning um, and, you know, have been fortunate that, you know, I've, I've had a mortgage for a long time and all those sorts of things. So I'm not, I haven't got the personal jeopardy that some people have got, I think, involved in that. Um, but I think what, what it highlights is the fear in the sector, um, why people won't speak up, because I, I've had literally hundreds of contacts in private saying, thank you for speaking up, I can't because, and that because is normally um, the, the reputational damage they'd, be, they, they'd inflict on the school and the community if they were honest about their challenges and others in the community weren't, which I understand, and also the target on the back that some heads feel around um, Ofsted and the accountability structure. Um, mm. and, and I completely understand that. So I don't, I don't ever um, sit in there thinking, you know, why you're not doing this, because I, I absolutely understand why in the first place. And, and the, re- the rationale for me, I mean, there's, we're all different and we're all in different stages of our career, as I said. And for me, this is about the future of education. You know, I, it's funny as you get, you know, mid-50s and you start thinking of, well, what difference have I made and what legacy is there? And for me, this is such an integral part of the opportunity I've been given through educating Essex and through having a platform is to be honest and, and to say, mm. where are the next teachers coming from? That's the bottom line. There is no other argument for me personally, apart from why can't I recruit when this school is a great place to work, it's an amazing building, it's really supportive and people can see that, but there's a harsh reality which makes people not want to 
work in education. Mm. So the, until any government minister sits there and says, we understand there's a teacher shortage, this is how we're going to solve that teacher shortage and in what time scale, then maybe, maybe I'd be less vociferous. But they can't answer that because, as we know, if a job is difficult but well-paid, you can recruit. If a job is, job is difficult and not perceived to be well-paid, you can't recruit. It's as simple as that. So and then when you throw working conditions and Ofsted in on top of that, it doesn't look like the best job in the world from the outside anymore. Vic, we're now going to go from the present to the past. I want us to take a deep dive into the annals of your memory. What's your very first memory of being in a school? Gosh, um, so that would be nursery or rece- probably reception. But I can remember milk, milk time in nursery. <laughs> I remember the bottles of milk coming out. I think probably the one that the most vivid early memory in school would be of the dressing up box in nursery. Because mm. when you move to reception, you still got half a day in the nursery area. And in the dressing up box was a Batman mask. <laughs> and me and my friend Trevor were, were always in the race to get to the Batman mask first. So I think that's probably my <laughs> earliest memory. Play whilst at school, unsurprisingly, rather than a lesson. <laughs> I think, God, you grew up on a council estate in South London, I understand. Yeah. Uh, what was the attitude towards education in your family and in your wider community? I mean, I was, I was very fortunate. So, you know, Dad left school at 14. Um, I wouldn't say his literacy and numeracy was great, um, but was a, a really hard-working man, a plumber, throughout his sort of his working life, as far as I was aware. Um, and Mum was um, also equally supportive. So, you know, Mum ended up being a dinner lady at my primary school. Dad ended up being the chair of governance of my secondary school. Um, you know, involved in the PTA. I was the youngest of four and, and two of my brothers had been through the school as well. So um, from from, out, from that perspective, I had a, an amazingly supportive family and um, a big brother decided he wanted to be a teacher. And at the time, um, no boy had left my school um, and gone to university because it was mm. secondary modern days, not when I got there, but when my brother went. Um, and if you failed your 11 plus, you went to the school we went to and if you pass it you went to the grammar school and my sister went to the grammar school and my two brothers didn't so from from my perspective that whole um sort of journey was the fact that my brother was was bucking the trend of the people around us and and you know worked incredibly hard to get to university for the first in our family and then it, it sort of became that self-fulfilling prophecy you know you, we he, he became something to uh, aspire to and to be inspired by um and so Unfortunately, or fortunately, he went on to be a teacher, as did my brother, as did my sister, as did I, coming from, you know, a plumber and, and, a, and a dinner lady, even though my mum was much more than that. But you know what I mean? That, that was the background. And, of course, I had many friends who, who didn't have that view and I had many opportunities to not be in school and go and do other interesting things with my friends who weren't in school. But um, it was sort of ingrained in us. I would, I would never have dared to, to do anything that was going to sort of damaged school reputation because it was such an integral part to our family. So I was, I was very fortunate and I, I, I appreciate that when I look at some of the routes some of my friends have, have journeyed since. It's interesting, um, certainly in my experience, and I think this is borne out in the data, um, teaching and indeed working in the educational space continues to be dominated by people who were born and raised in quite, from quite middle class backgrounds, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm sure yeah. it won't surprise listeners to hear that I'm from one of those backgrounds and <laughs> a, a veritable posho myself. You speak beautifully, uh, so I'm sure that's <laughs> <it's> that <one. laughs> Yeah, I'm not, I'm not making any efforts to hide it. Um, 
but what, what, what's your what's your take there, uh, Vic Goddard? Do you, do you think that that is an issue in the teacher profession that there is a lack of representation of um, people who, who are from working class families? And what more do you think we can do to um, to, to, to bridge that gap? I, I, the, the the rigid class structure that we still have, whatever anybody says, where certain professions are perceived to be middle class or even higher, and until until we break that, the the, the big example for me is is the the MPs and MPs talk about salary and they talk about you know their conditions, but the reality is for most of our MPs, certainly on the right side of Parliament, they they're not doing this job because it. It's they're going to be their lifetime ambition and they're going to not have any other work. Their MP's salary and their MP's role is part of what they do and they will have other things on the side, as we've seen from the second jobs issues and everything else. And I think until we've got a generation of politicians who perceive the salary to be a really good salary and the job to be a really good job, not just something they're doing to serve, but actually a job to aspire to, until we've got a working class proportion in, in Parliament and have got a voice and are in the top jobs, I think we're always going to struggle. I think, mm. you know, the, the class bounds in this country are so tight still, regardless of what anybody says. And I know the, the conservative dream of, you know, aspiration and improving yourself, it, that's, it's great. But, and we all hold up the Uncle Steve, you know, my Uncle Steve did this and he mm. came from my background. But the reality is there's not enough Uncle Steves. And and it's and it's still there are still too many barriers in the way. And until bottom line, we solve poverty and we solve that that sort of dearth of need, that sort of whole need that we have around poverty, then I'm not certain how we break that cycle because it's certainly I look at my son who's at university studying medicine. He wouldn't have got there if I didn't have the resources to support him through that. Mm. He wouldn't. He simply wouldn't. And so I just I don't think teaching is unique. I think if you look at those professions that people would say are sort of, you know, ones that are community focused or have a higher profile, they're almost all predominantly middle class. So I, I think I don't think it's a uniquely education issue. I just think it's a, you know, unfortunately, when, when people get into power, they don't want to change the system. And the power in the system at the moment supports people not from working class background. So, you know, education is part of the answer, but it's not all of the answer. Solving poverty is the big answer. Fascinating and a lot of hearty agreement from the, from me there, Vic. Um, returning to your uh, your school days, I'm curious to know what kind of uh, what kind of student were you when you were at school? Were there any uh, anything you really excelled at? Anything you really struggled with? Any teachers that particularly inspired you during your time? <laughs> I was lazy. Is what I was. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was a typical boy, a typically bright boy who could do enough to get by um, without really stretching themselves. Um, and you know, I, I certainly up to the age of eighteen, I, I didn't push myself at all. Um, and I went to school because I could play sport. It was it was that simple. What was my motive for going to school? Well, break and lunch and after school and before school. I had a ball in my hands or at my feet or, do you know what I mean? So for me that, and, and I always, I say that to the staff here, I don't care what the hook is for these children. And that's a little bit about the, you know, the real worry about a narrowing of our curriculum. You know, if you love music and music is your inspiration and we're not offering music at exam level because we haven't got enough children or the funding's rubbish, then actually that purpose for being in school, that real drive that gets you there 
it's taken away. You know, and it, so if, I think if, if PE hadn't been offered or all of a sudden PE was taken off the curriculum, I probably would have followed some of my friends and not been at school, if I'm honest. Um, so for me, that was, and of course, then that comes, you know, the teachers that inspire you are the ones that you want to follow. So mm. Frank Jennings was, was my the head of PE when I was at school in Penge, and, you know, he was a huge influence. But as was the case back in the 80s, you know, lots of other staff ran sports teams, you know, and yeah, Bevan ran the hockey team, John Rothwell ran the, ran the um, basketball team. And, and so I had all of these role models around me that were putting their time into sport that I, th- I felt I had, you know, something to give back to that and anything to prolong my, my sort of involvement in sport was <laughs> always going to be there. So um, I think finding the hook into it for young people into education, what are we going to, what's going to keep it and telling them, oh, well, it's really good because in 20 years time, you're going to earn a lot more money if you've got really good qualifications. Isn't it really a selling point when you're 13? So I think that, you know, what does a child love? Let's make sure it's on the curriculum. Let's make sure we give them access to it. That's a real worry for me because that's certainly, from my perspective, was well, almost the single reason why I wanted to go to school. Um, and because of that, I had to do some English and maths on the way. Vic, you were inspired into teaching from uh, your experience at school, but also from your experience at home. You had, um, I think you were saying, uh, all of your siblings, uh, older siblings, many of your older siblings went on to yeah, become teachers them, yeah. as well. What did they? Uh, what, what did you hear from them when they were starting to teach, going through their teacher training? How did that? Uh, how, did that how did that affect your decision to want to go on to be a teacher? It, it, it damaged my relationship with my older brother for a while because oh, um, yeah. he's ten years older than me, um, and so when he was at university, sort of age twenty, I was ten, um, and he was already becoming a teacher um, in his demeanour and his. Um, how he spoke to these noisy <laughs> young people. So he called me Sunshine quite a lot, which really <laughs> got on my nerves. What are you doing, Sunshine? Um, and so for a little while, he, be, he I could see him becoming a teacher in front of me, and he was no longer my big brother. Um, he was the teacher that was telling me off. So um, I think that was probably one of the more challenging times. But I, also, you know, when you're sitting around the table at Christmas and, and he's talking about, you know, what he's doing and and and... You could obviously see, A, how committed my brother was, but also what a difference he was making, you know, and, and that was inspiring for me. In, you know, he was doing something that he obviously loved, was making a difference and was getting paid for it. I mean, gosh, that's, mm. that's, that's the centre of a great Venn diagram, isn't it? You know, mm. if, you can, if you can find that space, then you're a winner all round. So, um, yeah, I mean, he was probably the single most influential person in, in probably both in mine and my brother, our brother and sister's lives, because I doubt if any of us would have gone down that route if he hadn't. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I did, I did, so it was, it was Bishop Otter College, which was part of West Sussex Institute of Higher Education in those days, obviously now University of Chichester. Um, and it was... It was everything I wanted it to be because I did, you know, I was playing sport at a good level, so I could have carried on doing that. But reality for me was I just wanted to be a teacher. And so, where was the best place for me to go? Well, somewhere that specialised in making teachers. That was a, a big motivator. I think the other part, if I'm honest, I, I presume they still make it. I haven't got six form of passports, so I don't actually look at it anymore. But the alternative um, university prospectus guide was a huge influence on my choice in the fact that. 
Yeah, I was looking at Loughborough and saw that there was eight men to every woman there. And I looked at Chichester and there was eight women to every man there. (laughs) And having come from an all-boys school, that was quite appealing. So that that helped. And I'm going to hate, you know, anybody listening to this from the north, I'm really southern. um, (laughs) And I didn't really want to go north. Um, So all of those roads led to some of those reasons I'm very valid and very appropriate, you know, about wanting to be the best teacher I can. But others were purely because I was a teenager driven by hormones and that seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we can all relate, Vic. I'm sure we can all <laughs> Can you remember the very first lesson you taught and how did it go? Mm. That's an interesting one. So my very first, like, proper lesson, apart from an interview to go to university where you had to teach a skill, um, would have been the first teaching practice um, that we had. So... The university, at my university, it was a four-year B.Ed., good old-fashioned four-year B.Ed., gave me time to grow up. Um, the, the first teaching practice we did was in the summer term. So as a PE teacher, the summer term is obviously the glory term where everybody sits in their classroom moaning about the PE teacher out in the sunshine with the wrong race of air on, um, where they don't do that in February and January when it's raining. Um, <laughs> so I, it was an athletics lesson, and it, it, was, it was sprint starts and, and sprinting. So... Um, I remember spending my time cutting and pasting a, a worksheet to give them and, 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 and sort of, you know, it wasn't the most difficult thing because they could all run <laughs> and trying to teach them. I remember t- t- talk, talking myself in radicals, trying to talk to them about the physics of friction in a, in a sprint start and why they work and why people get in certain positions. And I was literally talking to myself. So <laughs> um, I remember that one quite clearly. And, and an early maths lesson as well when um, I was trying to teach the class, because I did a P and maths degree, um, trying to teach them 3D rotational symmetry. And I, I'd gone to a real effort of making this post box with a mouth like of elastic you could make into different shapes and how many different ways you could post it through the same shape with your rotation symmetry. And I stood there doing this with the young people, and they looked back at me blankly. And I remember thinking, I don't know how to do this. And I looked at the teacher who was supervising me in the back with obviously sheer panic in my face because they popped up out of their seat and when they showed me how it should be done. <laughs> so both of those, yeah, they, it's interesting. I, I, until you asked that question, I, I, I didn't know if I... What, what that first lesson is, but now you say it, it's there. <laughs> those, two, those two incidents really stay with me. Preparation is organisation and preparation is the key to success. I learned very quickly. And what was your first school after you, uh, after you qualified and graduated at Vic Goddard? What was your first school that you ended up teaching? Yeah, so I was really fortunate that, I, you know, my school was on the South Coast and um, jobs on the South Coast are were always quite hard to get because it's a nice place to live. Um, and so it was, it was Angring School, which is sort of, um, well, it's in Angring, sort of along the coast from Worthing, Littlehampton, that area, sort of Brighton, mm. Brighton coast. Um, and I was very fortunate because I had a, my, my final year teaching practice was in a school just up the road and we'd had fixtures against them, um, against Angring. And um, I was probably the most knowledgeable with regard to coaching basketball of all the staff that were out there, even though I was a trainee. Um, and so I'd taken some basketball teams over to, to Angering and, and the head of the department, who was a basketball fanatic, obviously thought, oh, OK, this is, this is somebody that knows basketball. And I probably got a bit of a head start because of that. So, yes, Angering, Angering School on the South Coast, it was a, a lovely place. And that was in the days when you could nip out at lunchtime occasionally. I didn't manage it, but lots of <laughs> staff went down to the beach at lunchtime and things like that, down to the wittering. So 
Um, it was as a bit of me that always said I should have got my jobs the other way around and my sort of final job, my headship job, should have been on the South Coast because that was like a nice lifestyle, but it never quite worked out that way. But I had two fantastic years learning from really great people there. I'd love to hear more about those really great people that got out. I know that early in your career, um, inspirational colleagues can be transformative on our journeys as uh, professionals. I think the, the thing for me was um, I had um, my head of department who um, – was as old-fashioned PE-wise as you could imagine. You know, he, if you, you think cares and, and just take a little bit off, um, but was incredibly passionate about the time he gave up and um, pursuing excellence with children, not just giving them sport because they enjoy it, but really pushing excellence. And I learned that from him um, really early, that, you know, high expectations of young people, um, that they can perform if you give them the motivation to do so that was yeah that was that was he was a real influence and I think um another colleague in the department Kevin Grant who's um remarkably still teaching P because he's got to be 100 now um <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen um from an exam point of view so he ran sort of the key stage four key stage five stuff so these are the days of GCSE P and A level PE um and he he organized that and he was so thorough in his preparation for his classes and so um you know on top of things and i and i that's something i aspired to and still aspire to um <laughs> because he was yeah he that that stereotypical you know the the the, the thick pe teacher brains of a, you know brains of a rocking horse and the speed of a, you know strength of a racehorse you know you look at that he was he just wasn't that and he was you know a really articulate and academically focused teacher so i, I got real benefit of both of those one from the you know you can push children in a performance perspective in PE but also you can also push them academically and I think both of those really as I go keep going through my career I look back on those and think yeah they had it right. Now I read a bit Goddard that at one point in your teaching career you decided you wanted to be a head teacher by the age mm. of 40 and on a golf course by the age of 50 yeah. What made you realise you wanted a headship and take us through your journey to get there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think I said 55 originally, um, <laughs> and, and I'm 54 and I'm not making it, just so you know. I am playing a bit of golf, but I'm not, not enough. Um, because of I, I, I was playing lots of sport at a good standard when I was sort of school age and above, um, I, I had it in me to aspire to being the best that I could be in my sporting world. You know, I, I was certainly never... Um, the most talented sports person, but I was probably the hardest working and was in the gym before school, you know, in the gym at lunch and break. And I had, Frank, back to Frank Jennings, a teacher that would say, all right, Vic, here's the key. Go on, get on with it. Um, and I think that that sort of input and in terms of in pushing yourself and setting yourself high standards and aspiring to be the best you can be just was a really easy transfer into being ahead. You know, I looked at being a teacher mm. And what's the pinnacle of the job as a teacher? Well, it's to be the head teacher. So I, I actually started my career with a plan to be a head teacher. It wasn't something that grew as I, as I did the job. When I went in, it was, I want to be a head. I want to be a head of, by 40. And why I said that at age, I've absolutely no idea. Um, <laughs> and, and not do it forever, make sure that I do it, you know, and give it everything and get out while I still can. Um, and I, I guess that's what it was. And I, and I did leave jobs. I left angering really sad to leave um 
I did, I did two years there, but an opportunity came up for a promotion at a school near home in South London. And so I, I just applied and got it. And, it. and I think probably my first two or three jobs, I left being sad to leave, um, mm. but also seeing an opportunity to grow and to develop. So, And, and I was always and am still always somebody that wants to do that. And as part of your journey, I believe you had a stint abroad, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, I did three, a little bit more about that. Yeah, I did three years in Cairo. So I was, wow. you know, I was in a, I was in a relationship, um, and we were both um, teachers, both in the same school, and um, we were both, we were both very settled. We'd done four. This I was at Cheam High School by this point. We'd done both done four years. Um, my partner was ahead of year, and you know, having started as an NQT, um, I was sort of head of had boys PE and doing exams and was given a lot of freedom by the head of department. Um, and we sort of both went, if we're not careful, we're here for the next 20 years. And mm-hmm. which would be lovely because, you know, I had basketball teams playing in national finals and all sorts of, you know, England basketball players coming through. And um, But the reality was we both just had a little bit of itchy feet, really, and we wanted to see what the world had to offer. So one... Friday, as those were the days of the TES landing on the doormat, just applied for every overseas job that mentioned PE there was. I think I applied for eight or nine different jobs and uh, got interviews from most of them because we were a teaching couple and that's what the overseas market wanted at the time. Um, and had, a, had an interview for a job in Bahrain and um, thought they were going to offer it. And then the next day we had an interview and they don't tell you straight away, you have to wait a week while they do their interview. So the next day you had the into for a job in Cairo. Um, and we happened to be the closest to where the interviews were being held. So we were interviewed last. And even though they told us they're not going to offer the jobs today, I was the last interview. And I just knew they were going to offer it to us. Just, it wasn't really an interview. It was a chat about who we were. Um, and so I ran downstairs to my partner and said, they're going to offer us this job. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um, and all I knew about Cairo is what my dad had told me, which was dirty, horrible, smelly, stinking place because he'd been there in the 50s and the Syria crisis and uh, as part of his national service. So, um, but it, it was one of those things where if I don't say yes, if we don't take this opportunity, mm. we're going to regret it. And if, if we do take it and it's horrible, well, school starts in August, finishes at the start of June, it's eight months of my life. And actually... Go for it. So, yeah, we, we did and we went. And I'll be honest, for eight weeks, if you'd have offered me a plane ticket home, I'd have taken it because um, mm. it was hot. It was confusing. If you've ever been to Cairo, it's crazy with traffic mm. and people. Um, and I didn't speak any Arabic at all. And taxes, well, I think they do the opposite of the knowledge in taxes in Cairo. They take the knowledge out of people's brains about where places mm. are. And so they drive around in circles. So, um but then, funnily enough, I, I went to Cyprus for the weekend um, to a conference, an athletics director's conference, as it was called then, not PE, not PE conference. And I realised that Cyprus was about 35 minutes away. It had a Woolworths and a Marks and Spencers. And if I was really miserable, I could escape at any point. And then I never went back to Cyprus because I had it in my arm. I didn't need it anymore. And my Arabic picked up and I could point at things and, and ask for things. And... Uh, <laughs> I had three amazing years, I'll be honest, in, in a, an organisation where um, I was given huge amounts of freedom. And if I'm honest, it's a fee-paying international school. And so what was the owner's interest in sport? Well, it was a shop window and it was, mm. you know, sports days were important. It was also important that certain children won, which was a, a new feeling. 
um, President Mubarak's grandson was there. Oh, wow. And uh, a sports day came around and I was asked before the sports day, and which race is Mohammed winning? <laughs> um, so I, I learned politics quite quickly there as well. And it's called Wasta in Arabic, which means influence. And I learned mm. that Wasta exists and it still exists here. So I, amazing three years, absolutely amazing. Went to, you know, Damascus, went to Beirut, went to all, Aleppo, all sorts of places around the Middle East. And was teaching in a school with great facilities and kids who just wanted to do sport. So, um, and I've always encouraged, I did, um, you know, colleagues here, you know, if, if you've reached that point where you want to do something new, then look. Um, I, I say it less often now because I can't afford to lose anybody, but <laughs> it was certainly, certainly from an experience point of view, it was amazing. And from a financial point of view, if I'm honest, because we came home with money in the bank to afford a house. And we certainly wouldn't have been able to do that before going to Cairo. So, <laughs> Sounds like a brilliant experience that eventually yeah, right. led you uh, back to the UK where you uh, joined um, Passmore School, as it was known then, as a member of the senior leadership team. You go on to make your way to being head teacher and that's a role you're still in. Yeah. Is there anything about your school and community that's kept you there for all these years? Um, the job's not done. That, that's, that's a big part of it. Um, I, I remember when my when first or in the first term is speaking to the head of science at the time, Bridget, and she'd been at the school, gosh, pushing 20 years already as a head of science. And I said to her, I said, you know, well, you know, you're a head science teacher, so why have you not pushed up through your career? Why have you not gone for assistant head deputy? Because you're a science teacher, so you get one. Um, and she said those exact words to me, the job's not done yet, Vic, and, and the best place that I can influence it, she said, was in the classroom. Um, and that really resonated with me, and it stuck with me 20 years later, that that sense of service to a community, she felt, I've, I feel, I feel that service to this community. That's why the, <clears throat> the whole strike issue and funding issue is so close to my heart, because these are the communities that are most damaged by those. We do the least well out of accountability system. We do least well out of funding. You know, we do least well out of unfunded pay rises because I have a lot of support staff because we have a lot of need in our children. So that that whole thing around service has been, I always knew that was part of who I was and why I wanted to do it. But when you become ingrained in the community and, you know, Harlow really matters to me um, and not just the kids at Passmore's. You know, we, we work as part of a mat. We work with another secondary school. I don't care which school they go to. Of course, you, your heart's with the original school, but the sense of community here is is something that could very easily disappear. You know that that sort of edge of London, new town feel, and actually, the, the, the community doesn't view itself kindly. Um, you know, it's Harlow, it's this, and you hear it in the kids, you hear it from their parents, and and actually, Harlow's a great place. And um, yeah, and I, I, the job's just not done yet. We can still we can still make it better, and and I think that. It's hard to. I always thought that I would probably move on from my first headship to do, you know, make all your mistakes and move on. But once I was here, there was there was that sense of purpose. You know, having a purpose is a privilege, and and I had my purpose through working here. And so when that's, you know, I lost my dad, I have lost one of my brothers. It was interesting that my default setting was once I'd done everything I needed to do logistically, I wanted to be back in school because it was my normal. It was my safe place. It was a place where people knew who I was and it didn't matter that I'd had some stuff going in my life outside 
I was Mr. Goddard, the teacher, and, you know, the relationships that came along with that. So it, school has been very much both a, a sort of a, a safe place and a, a, for me to, to be who I want to be, but also, yeah, that sense of there's still plenty to give. Exactly the kind of inspirational take I would have expected from you, Vic Goddard, as one of our most uh, prominent public voices for education in this country. For many of our listeners, they would have first encountered you uh, on the TV show Educating Essex, a pioneering bit of reality TV in which your school was filmed for seven weeks in 2010 to depict what really goes on in English schools every day. What was your reaction when you first got the phone call from Channel 4 to ask your school to participate? my my initial reaction would have been very simply laughing when the receptionist <laughs> said Channel 4's on the phone and telling them I'm busy. Um, but sadly, we'd had a, a death in the school um, mm. in the December before the phone call. So the phone call came around March time and we'd had a, a death of a, of a young man at the school who'd um, come to the school with, you know, medical challenges. He was actually mm. a, a year down from his chronological age. And we thought he... He got, he got through it and was getting stronger with puberty and everything else and then died of heart failure. Um, and so I'd had a term with the kids at school and the staff talking about Jamie, talking about life being short and, you know, making the most of our opportunities and not being scared to take risks. And then, yeah, Channel 4 phone up and, and test, my, uh, test my own view of actually if that's true. So I didn't expect to do it. I just said you know, okay, come in and talk to me. I'm not willing to say no to something I don't know enough about. So they came in and, and pitched a series that was going to be um, filmed 90 to 95% outside of school, um, following year 11s around um, in their private lives and sort of tying it together with school. Um, and very and, we, and for, so for me, that was, okay, that doesn't feel too bad. <laughs> you now need to speak to the governors because it can't be my choice. It has to be the governor's choice. And spoke to the governors, said fairly similar things. Um, and governors, obviously, if I'd have been completely against it, I'd have, they would have said no, probably. But I'd reached that point of um, Jamie's dream school had just been on telly, <laughs> um, which was an absolute car crash if you were a teacher. And Robert, <laughs> I remember Robert Winston apologising for his part in that show, a conference we were both talking at. Um, he just said, you know, I didn't realise they were going to use it to show that an idiot could be a teacher, even me. Um, so that had been on, so that was a bit of a motivation. The government had just removed contextual value added as a um, measurement tool. So mm-hmm. for me, um, that was vital because it gave me the... Um, it gave Well, it just gave context to the work we're doing. That We can't compete with the school in affluent Surrey all the time because we have different challenges and actually success for us looks different. And I was sick and tired of, of mm. the, if you don't go to university, you, you're not fully educated view that was definitely evolving at the start of 2010s. Um, and so I, it was sort of like, well, why not? Why wouldn't we say yes and, and show people what young people are like? And then we said yes, and then very quickly, two weeks into them following our students outside of school, they came back to us and went, they're not very interesting outside of school. (laughs) They spent a lot of their time looking at devices and very little of their time talking to each other. (laughs) But what we've seen in the little bit we were filming in schools has been more interesting, so we want to change it to it's a schools-based programme and we want to put cameras up around the school and we want to put microphones around the school and follow a day in the life here and I was like okay well 
we're in it now. So, okay, mm-hmm. let's go. And that, it, that's how it evolved to being the series it was. That, that wasn't the production company's idea. It certainly wasn't what they sold me. Um, but, you know, it was what it was. And, and I don't disagree. My son was incredibly dull outside of school as well when he was <laughs> So um, I understood it. So, yeah, it was... <clears throat> It was a it was a, a lucky accident that it evolved into what it was, but I don't think we were the brave ones. It's interesting. Everybody says, "Oh, you were really brave to do it." We weren't because we had no clue what we were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, we had no clue what it was going to look like. We had no clue of the impact, and so <clears throat> we went into it blindly. Whereas every school that followed us knew what it was going to be like mm-hmm. and still said yes. And so they were the brave ones. We were the ones who just sort of. Yeah, I know we were the first, but we were ignorance was bliss. Mm-hmm. Has to be said at the time. And so you you were able to secure buy-in from the governors. What was the response from other staff, the school community, even the pupils? Did did they take some persuading as well? I did none of that. And I and when I said yes with the company, I, I told them that that would be the case. That mm-hmm. if they were going to get people to sign up, it wasn't going to come from me. And and the re, I, there was a really a really specific decision for me in the fact that. No matter what we say, young people and most fair families have a connection with their head teacher. They trust mm. them. You know, you see the list from that comes out every year from whatever consultancy company does it about who the most trusted people are. Mm. Well, teachers are right at the top. MPs are right at the bottom, by the way. <laughs> but teachers are right at the top, you know, just behind doctors and police, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't want anybody to say yes because I was asking them. Um, they needed to say yes because it was for their own reasons they wanted to be involved. So the production company wrote to the parents, the production company came in and did meetings. Um, I spoke to the staff and told them very clearly, if you don't want to be involved, you don't have to be. And so everybody that was, was there for their own reasons, not because they felt obliged because I'd asked them. And so that 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 helped in the long run because we got I got inundated with Freedom of Information Act requests for some very unpleasant journalists who were desperate to find the holes in what we were doing and what our motivation was because obviously what was being depicted on telly was a fairly um, liberal with a small L approach to education and the fact that I wasn't just going to kick kids out because they'd done something wrong. We were going we to learn through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had a little target on our back for a little while. So we had the journalist that broke the MP expenses scandal. He uh, wrote me a very long FOI asking for deleted scenes and who'd said no and 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 because I hadn't kept any of that information and they'd kept all the slips and everything else I could I had nothing to give him so it ended up being it ended up being a you know a good thing to do it that way but I didn't persuade a soul um, and I wouldn't have done because I didn't think that was fair. So the production team installed cameras over the course of a half term how did the pupils initially react to cameras being all (laughs) over the school? So there, were, I think there were sixty-five cameras. I think up wow. around the school, um, and they just come out of the one. Uh, I think one born every minute oh, filming because yeah. I think it was the same company. I think they do both, so they didn't look like cameras. They looked like silver footballs stuck on a wall because mm. the cameras moved within the casing, so you didn't see the camera follow you. So if I was walking along, I wouldn't have. You know, I think if a camera had been gone, you know, zooming along with me, I'd have probably felt more uncomfortable and realised they were there. So they were sort of they were very discreet um the, and and we had you know the pell mics that you see on people on tv we had 200 of those hanging from the ceiling around the school um and i remember two incidents one was a bit of blue tack on the camera lens um that had to get taken off 
And when the first went round, there was a bit of, you know, boxing, speedball work on a few of the, uh, a few of the microphones. But it was really amazing how quickly it all got forgotten. You know, you, they were only, the cam- those cameras were only in for seven weeks. They filmed for the whole year, but those cameras were only for seven weeks. <clears throat> and very quickly they were backgrounds. Very quickly they were forgotten. Because schools are busy places with lots of emotions and lots of things happening. Mm. And if you're talking to a child, the fact there's a silver ball behind them didn't really make any difference. And you, and you forgot very, very quickly. And the children did. But remembering, we didn't know what the output was going to be. We didn't know what they were going to film. And also, the young people didn't know which cameras were being recorded at what time because they didn't record all the cameras all the time. They chose to follow things around. It's really smart. Um, so it, very easily, I would say we had less problems than the schools that followed us, I would imagine, because ours, they didn't know it was a way to get famous. Mm. And in terms of day-to-day having production staff around school, how were they shaping the narrative that would eventually become Educating Essex? Did they consult you on any pupils, teachers, situations they wanted to focus on? Yeah, I mean, so literally there was a a metal container in the the car park and a caravan. Um, The metal container was where they did the the Vox Pops that you saw, Mm. um, where they did face-to-faces with students and staff. It looked like it was in a... They had school lockers in the background. And I got grief about, look at the state of your lockers. They're not mine. <laughs> They're the production companies. Um, so they had that. And I would get out of my car in the morning and a production assistant would hand me a microphone. I'd put it on and then I wouldn't see them again until the end of the day. <laughs> um, and and that was the same with, with the students. So what they did was they 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 got to know the year group for that first, that first sort of half term they were in. Um, and then they decided to give microphones to certain children on certain days to see what happened. Um, and it was quite remarkable sitting in the caravan, seeing all the 65 screens, but knowing they're only recording on three or four at a time. I, I sat in there sometimes during the day just looking at my school going on. I mean, how many times do you get proper observation without mm-hmm. having that participant yeah. observation impact? Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I was able to sit and, and look at interactions between staff. It was very voyeuristic to be back on it. Um, you know, look at interactions, look at how the young people treated each other, look at who they spoke to. So that was really interesting. And the end of every day, I, I visited the, the producer director and said, what's happened today? What have you seen? What children, you know, I wanted to know what, what was going on because I wanted to make sure those children were protected if they needed to be. Or I could say to the production company, that's not appropriate to follow them. You can't follow that story because... It's too divisive. It will lead to issues in the future for that child. So they were they were very open, and I think that's one of the reasons we said yes. You know, I I did threaten the director on the first day of filming. Mm. I told him I come from South London and I've got some really horrible mates, <laughs> and if he uh, if he does anything to damage any child or adult in my school, he will find himself buried under a motorway somewhere. <laughs> and he looked at me smiling and laughing, thinking I was joking. And I didn't smile and laugh back. So um, <laughs> I doubt if I would have done it, but it was a good threat at the time. <laughs> so yeah, it was. It it wasn't as in, it sort of it wasn't as disruptive as you think it was. The only time it became an issue for me was when at the end of a day I'd go into my PA's office, who I made sure there were no cameras and no microphones in, um, and then thought. Jesus, what did I, did I fart? Did I, what did I scratch? You know, what did, what, did I pick my nose? What are they going to, what's the montage going to be of the head in his office? Um, that was the only time I ever got sort of freaked a little bit. Um, and then having to watch myself on telly um, when they showed it to us before the episode went out that night, that was, um, 
yeah, that was that was unpleasant all round. But that's that's another story. That's a whole different that's a whole different show about my insecurity. So we're not going to worry about that one. And the the, the show is, is is utterly phenomenal, right? I'm sure for anyone who's who's worked in a school, it it resonates in a really profound mm-hmm. way. And for those who haven't worked in a school or indeed can't recall their own school days very well, it really uh, reaches a hand out to them and brings them into yeah. a really compelling world. What are the what are the stories from the show that really stood out to you? What are the stories that are, you're really glad were depicted in it and you think were really important to depict? The, the key thing for me was allowing that insight into the school. You know, the amount – I had 80,000 emails over the course of mm. three or four months mm-hmm. just about the show from people who weren't – living in my community were, you know, watching it in Scotland, watching it elsewhere. Um, and the one real thing that came through from so many was parents emailing me of teenagers saying, thanks for giving us the insight. It's mm. a programme that we can watch together and, um, and we can have real discussions about what school's really like for our children because, you know, getting blood out of a stone if you're trying to talk to a teenager about their school day. Um, and that really, that was heartwarming in the fact that parents could see the fact that, A, schools are challenging places, but also there were adults that gave a damn. Um, and actually, you know, the exam results are a part of their journey, but not all of it. So that was that was a real lovely part of the feedback. I mean, the, there was some hideous stuff. I mean, the, the Daily Fail ran uh, <laughs> an online article halfway through episode one like using how the kids looked from the publicity shots as a, as a reason to, you know, to say things. And they, they were vile. They turned up at school the morning, of the, of the, the morning after the first episode to, to, to doorstep me um, and, you know, expected me to talk to them, um, which I didn't, of course, and just escorted them out. Um, so that, what, I've, what I found was the, the massive difference between how the written media behave and how the sort of mm. the radio and TV media behave, because they're a law unto themselves in the written media, and they feel that you know because they're what that one step separated from the damage they cause to humans, they don't seem to care. Um, whereas I always had Ofcom when it came to the TV. Mm. I always had uh, this child will be bullied if you allow that to happen, um, and I never had to play that card, but I knew I always had it. So that, yeah, that was, that was an interesting part of the journey. You know, I, did, I never expected to be at the pub on a Friday night and be standing having selfies because <laughs> the, pub's, the pub's full of teachers on a Friday night. Um, you know, and, you know, I had a, a young son and, you know, going, going to Lakeside and, and somebody falling off the bottom of the escalator because they're going, oh, I knew that bloke off the bang, you know. <laughs> um, so that was, that was all very odd and very unexpected, you know, to go, we went to the BAFTAs. I, I presented an award with Mr. Drew at the British Comedy Awards. Um, Nicky Flanagan mouthed when we were on the telly. It's my favourite bit. I never watched anything about it, but I watched that back. And he's, all I could see him mouth when Jonathan Ross introduced us was, who the F are they to the oh person on the table? <laughs> so the fact that Mickey Flanagan didn't know me is going to be a dying claim to fame forever. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was bizarre. You know, Barbara Windsor asked for our photograph. Wow. That's weird. You know, that... And it wasn't because we were, you know, on the telly, because let's be honest, it's Barbara Windsor. Um, it was because we represented people in their her life that were important. Mm. Um, and, you know, she spent 40 minutes telling me how the school had kept her on the straightish and narrowish road. Mm. Um, so it, that was a, an utter privilege to represent a profession that was so important to mm. so many people, because that's how it ended up feeling. 
And I guess that's probably how it's still went. <laughs> I, because I'm noisy and because, you know, my opinion is asked of things, I guess that's, I'm still, we're still having the benefit of that. And you mentioned uh, Jamie's Dream School earlier on, which was a, a, yeah. a predecessor of sorts to educating yeah. Essex. By the way, my view is that it's interminable dross. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, but I'm uh, I'm reminded of a, uh, a, a a very positive review of Educating Essex in the Guardian, in which the um, the reviewer noted that uh, Mr. Drew's history class is much better than that of famous historian David Starkey's, as we have in Jamie's right. school, which must be a, a a vaultingly great accolade for one of your teachers to receive. He he is one of the best teachers I've ever seen in my life, so it's no great surprise, to be fair. You'd be, you'd be a remarkable teacher to be a better teacher than Steve Drew. <laughs> and, of course, Educating Essex was phenomenally successful, spawned several spin-offs and really opened the eyes of the public to what school life is really like in all of its uh, messy glory. But you declined to have Channel 4 back film a second yeah. series. Uh, why? Well, I told them that my part of the deal was if they behaved as they should behave, that I would help them in future series by going to the schools they were going to do it in and talking to the staff, the students and the governors, which I did for all of the episodes, all of the series that went, and told them the truth of it so they could go with their eyes open. Um, and Jay Hunt, who was the creative director of Channel 4 um, during the, the time the series was on and after, she would email me quite regularly. She was lovely and really supportive. I, I remember... After one of the episodes, she emailed me and said that your face was in 3.1 million people's homes last night, which is more than we'll watch professional football this weekend. And I was like, oh, geez, Louise. <laughs> um, but she asked, she asked on several occasions, when are we coming back? And, and I just asked her a really simple question. I just said, what's the value of your child's education? What price are you going to put on that? Mm. Because for me, because we did it when we didn't know what the output was, children were natural and we could de-escalate, even though there was a camera in the background. Mm. But... If I went to a lesson for a second series and was outside, maybe supporting a member of staff who'd got a disrupted child in the class, so the child's outside talking to me, I'm, you know, I'm reasonably good, I hope, at de-escalation and getting young people, you know, to to de-escalate from whatever trouble they're getting themselves in. Um, and my massive fear was and is, and what happens if there's a camera over my shoulder? Does that mm. child then think that well, if I don't de-escalate, I'm going to end up on the telly? So. Um, and if they make a choice that then terminates their, their education at my school or mm. damages their reputation in the community, well, what's the value of that? Put a price on it. Um, and she couldn't. And uh, she called me some names and said, I knew you'd be too sensible. And, um, and, and they've, they've sort of, they've, obviously they've stopped asking now, but um, I'm sure that if I went back to the production company and said, do you want to do a return to educating Essex? They'd bite my arm off. But mm. um, yeah, it, the risk, it was, it's risk and reward, and, and it, it feels like saying yes again would be too much of a risk for the children in the school. Interestingly, we did ask after, when they came back straight away, um, in fact, before they'd even aired any of it, so can we come again next to year? Mm. And I went to staff and asked them, and interestingly, all of the staff that had said they didn't want to be involved when we first said yes, all, all taken, they would all said they would be involved if we did it again. Mm. Uh, but it was, you know, it was, it was, for me, the school reputation is important, but actually it's children's lives and futures. Mm. And it just felt like a risk to say yes again. And thinking back on the show, it seems like there's actually still quite a low level of literacy among the general public about what goes on mm. in schools and the challenges that teachers and school leaders face on a daily basis. What more do you think we could be doing as a sector to improve the public's understanding? 
Do you know what? I think that, that it comes back to sort of the start of our conversation in the fact that there's fear that permeates schools mm-hmm. um, and it's debilitating. I used to, um, when I talked to, you know, I'm still fortunate, I get asked to talk to schools and leaders. And I used to have a slide um, that was called the Ofsted Cycle of Courageousness. Mm-hmm. And it had three stages of it. The stage one was you just had an inspection, you got a good, and it's a picture of a head teacher or a person with their feet up on the desk smoking a cigar. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, that's how it feels once you've had an inspection. And then the next one was a graphic of somebody looking over their shoulder. And I said, that's how it feels if the window's coming. And then there was a picture of um, a cartoon picture of somebody standing on a cliff edge about to step off. And that's what it feels like when you're in the window. And um, I did a talk for a a map um, last week and I had to remove that slide because Mm. we know the truth that a teacher has committed suicide and Mm. has said it's because of Ofsted. Um, And that fear is rife. The fear of, if I'm honest about the challenges I face, the parents in the community won't choose us. If I'm honest about the challenges that we face, I can't get a maths teacher, then, um, you know, the, the community will, will not come. Um, Ofsted turn up um, if I'm too noisy. You know, I've, mm. I've, I've added pressure on myself when I'm in that, that last phase of the Ofsted window in the fact that I sit at the kitchen table going, right, I'm a really noisy bugger. Does that mean they're going to come and get me, or does that mean they're frightened of me? Mm. You know, and I've and I've convinced myself of both at different times, um, and I, and I think that's why we don't know what goes on in schools because we hide it because head teachers don't want to won't publicise when life's tough because they're worried about the school reputation. You know, I wrote I wrote in lockdown for the Guardian about um, the amount of damage um, COVID was doing to my community, but also the mental health issues. Um, and we had four um, parents or young people commit suicide. Um, and I wrote about that and I wrote about how difficult it was and, you know, how we need to put things in place at schools. Remember the damage could be a long time. Mm-hmm. I had an Ofsted call two days later about safeguarding because of the amount of suicides going on in my community and were we not supporting them? You know, now, thankfully, it was dealt with by the local authority. But that's why you don't speak up. Mm. That's, that's why you don't speak up. That's why you're not honest about the challenges because there's fear. There's fear of damage reputationally and there's fear of a vindictive accountability system coming for you. Um, and so you're never going to have a true insight while we think it's going to do damage if, you, if you're honest. Uh, something that I'm sure resonates with uh, a lot of people working in schools out there, Vic Goddard. There's two questions we always ask all of our guests on the Life Pedagogic. <laughs> Firstly, looking back on your career in education, is there anything you've really changed your mind about? And if so, what changed it? Um, <laughs> so I was in the era of teachers. So, if, you know, I came into teaching at the end of the 80s, start of the 90s. Um, and it was the era of steak oil salesmen. Um, mm. It was the era of, um, you know, visual audio and you know kinesthetic learning and writing learning objectives on the wall and (laughs) all those sorts of things that were just um we looked for the golden ticket you know to how do we improve these kids there must be a there must be a way and we blindly followed them and we blindly you know anybody that was given a a platform at a conference or you know an inset you believed and we and we went down routes of wasting lots of time mm-hmm. i think so i think there's quite a few, actually questioning what i'm told that will make a difference to young people having a more um academic view to the 
the art and skill of teaching and actually how the brain works and things like that. Mm. That just that wasn't part of our conversation. Um, and it is now. And, and that's a really positive thing. So, yeah, I wish I hadn't, I wish I hadn't agreed to listen to all the snake oil salesmen when I was younger, really telling me how, how this was going to make me the best teacher in the world. But actually, you know, it's about context and relationships. That's what's going to make me the best teacher in the world. So it's, um, yeah, that, that was it for me. I think we don't blindly agree with a consultant who stands up in front of us anymore. And I think that's a massive improvement. Yeah, really positive change for sure. And finally, what two things would you most like to change about the English educational system? Mm. So I'm not going to talk about funding because um, mm. that's, that's not the system, that's the government. Um, the top, we have to change the toxic accountability system. We mm. have to. It's driving people out of the profession. It is making people ill. It is making people take their lives. And whatever anybody in government says, no matter what, yeah, parents, parents need it to choose their school. Well, I can tell you now that my school is not top of any league table, either nationally, in Essex or in Harlow, but we remain the most oversubscribed school in the town. So what, why do the parents choose us? What, you know, we've got the same offset as everybody else. Um, that doesn't stand out. Our results are not as good as some other schools or from a P8 point of view, progress eight point of view. So they choose it because we give a damn and we publicly give a damn. Um, that's, that's why. So we, we have to, we have to change that system because it's, it's killing the profession quite literally, sadly. Um, I think that's, that's one, but I, I think generally our, our absolute fixation with weighing the pig um, mm. across all stages of education, you know, from baseline tests through to, you know, SATs through to why we've got GCSEs at 16 and why we've not got education that goes on further. I, th I just think a whole look at, you know, a system that's based on Piaget's work of st splitting up key stages um, doesn't really make sense. Mm. So for me, that get rid of, I would move everything later. I'd get kids starting school later. I'd get compulsory education finishing later. Mm. I'd give children a chance to be children. I'd make sure parents had... Um, the right, you know, they, they could afford to be at home and raise their children and spend time with them. Um, I think that would remove so much. And also then maybe we'd get all new, all schools are through schools because I think that's, you know, if you remove the exam dead, sort of deadlines, then actually that becomes easier too. And so for me, education being one journey, not punctuated by exams that have got nothing to do with the child and everything to do with the system, will make schools less pressured, will give us more time, even though children essentially start school later, they'll be more ready for it. So, um, yeah, they're, they're my two. They're, they're not little things, unfortunately. <laughs> a compelling vision for many of our listeners, nonetheless. Vic Goddard, it's been a pleasure and a privilege having you on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed discussing your life pedagogy. Thanks very much. Much appreciated and very privileged to be asked. Thank you. We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things that you can do. 1. Subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. 2. Share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. 3. Review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.